we are going to look now, if you'd open up your Bibles, to Exodus 15. The title for this lesson is Wilderness Bitterness. Wilderness Bitterness. And let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the hunger of your people. I don't know how they can sit through two hour sessions in a row, but that must be because they want to know your word better. And I thank you for that. It's not everybody in the world would do this. Thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to study your word, to get to know you better. Thank you for the fellowship we can have. Thank you for the food. Thank you for life. And thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces us. And I pray it will pierce us and that it will convict us and that you will do your work through your Holy Spirit with every soul here. And Lord, most of all, if anyone here does not have a personal relationship with you, I pray she would take care of that today, that she would wait, stay afterwards and talk to one of our um, ladies or myself and that she would settle that matter because it is the most important thing she can do in this life and the life to come is to have a savior, a secure anchor in heaven. Now, go before us, and as I said, please, I pray that your spirit would have his will and way, and that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in he alone. For I do ask these things in his precious name. Amen. The book of Genesis, if you want to take a little sneak look at it, ends, the very last verse in Genesis fifty twenty six ends with these words, a coffin in Egypt. The last words of the book of Genesis. A coffin in Egypt. You know, when you have said everything that there is to say, all you can really, bottom line, all you can really say about man is that he lives in the realm of death in this world. And Egypt is a picture of this world. By himself, man cannot escape his bondage to the wages of sin, which is death. No matter how many new beginnings God has given to man, Think about it. Again, here's another trinity. He gave man a brand new beginning in a perfect environment in Eden, didn't he? Man messed up. Then he tried again. He gave man uh, a new beginning, a cleansed world after the flood. Didn't take man too long, messed up again. Then he gave man a new beginning after the Babel incident. Three different new beginnings man needs a savior (laughs) really man absolutely is helpless and hopeless without a savior so we have the second book of scripture the book of exodus which is all about god's answer to man's desperate need which is redemption man needs to be redeemed man needs to be saved The main theme of Exodus is redemption, spiritual redemption, which is taught in Exodus by way of an historical, an actual historical account of a miraculous physical redemption, which is the deliverance of Israel from her position as slaves in Egypt. So the whole book of Exodus is a physical picture of a spiritual truth, a physical deliverance that is actually picturing the need for spiritual deliverance. 
the original Passover night in Egypt and the Red Sea crossing scenario are again pictures. God speaks to his children in pictures. Like when your children are little, you get out a picture book, don't you? Because they don't know words. So he gives us a lot of pictures in early revelation. That's why Genesis and Exodus have more pictures in them than many of the later books. But the, the original Passover, when the lamb had to be shed and the blood swiped on the lintel, the doorposts of their home so that the angel of death would spare all the firstborns. That's a picture of Christ, the Lamb of God, whose blood had to be shed and applied to the doorposts of our hearts so that as firstborns, we would become secondborns, born again, and the angel of death would pass over us. That's a picture. The Red Sea crossing is a picture of the gospel. The Lamb had to die. And then he had to be buried. The people were buried. Basically, it was a picture in the bottom of the Red Sea. But then they came out the other side, resurrection. There's another gospel. <laughs> That's the gospel of the Passover. The ex- we could call it the Exodus gospel. And it was an advance illustration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the Passover lamb, who made it possible for all men to be delivered from their bondage slavery in this world, Egypt, and uh, its evil pharaoh. Who is the world's evil pharaoh? Satan. Satan, right. But the full redemption story is not complete in Exodus because Israel does not get to the promised land by the end of the book of Exodus. Did you know that? No, she doesn't. <clears throat> This is a big detour. (laughs) And that's not how it is for us either. We do not get to go straight to the promised land, to heaven, after we are redeemed, usually. Now, there are exceptions like the thief on the cross. But for, for most of us, we don't go straight to heaven after we are saved. We may no longer be slaves to Egypt, but we are still in this world, aren't we? Yes, we are still in this world, which is a wilderness. Have you noticed? Life before our redemption is Egypt. Life after our our redemption, our salvation, is a wilderness journey. We are all on a wilderness journey. And that doesn't sound too thrilling. Nonetheless, it's true. But the good news is we're not alone in this wilderness journey. As Israel was led, you know that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of cloud by uh, fire by night? That was the Lord. That was the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And he was leading her throughout her wilderness journey as that was the case, so also is he with us in our wilderness journey. Except even better, because his spirit is where? Within us, guiding us and leading us through this wilderness life until we get to heaven. And as with Israel, we also battle with our carnal nature. 
which means that we are prone to fall into the same sins as the Israelites. When we look at them, we're going to say, oh, man, they were bad. They were dumb. They were a bunch of gripers. But let's not be too harsh because <laughs> we fall into the exact same sin patterns as they did. And that's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 4 said that the whole wilderness experience of Israel was written for our instruction. It's not just ancient history. It's for us to learn practical lessons for our Christian walk. Now, Israel's exodus from Egyptian territory did not really end until the Lord's miraculous parting of the Red Sea which allowed her then to pass over into the land of Midian. You see, Egypt owned the whole Sinai Peninsula. So it wasn't until she passed over the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the right-hand part of the Red Sea, if you look at a map later on or in the back of your Bible, it wasn't until she crossed that Gulf of Aqaba, which is part of the Red Sea, and got into Midian that she was actually free of Egypt. It was a glorious moment when that happened for the descendants of Jacob because they were free of Pharaoh forever. Why were they free of Pharaoh forever? Well, because he and his massive chariot army were swallowed up when the congealed waters of the Red Sea that had been parted by God Almighty, when they came crashing down on them. And if you've never seen the DVD of the Exodus Revealed, you need to see it. It is fantastic because they found the chariot wheels at the bottom of the Gulf of Aqaba. It's just amazing. Amazing. You've got to see that DVD and share it with your kids. But Pharaoh was swallowed up just like, remember, the serpents of the magicians were swallowed up by Moses and Aaron's rods that swallowed, or Aaron's rod that swallowed up. And just like the locust, remember the locust plague? Those locusts, an east wind came and blew them, and they also were swallowed up. Well, Pharaoh was swallowed up. And if you think I'm being funny when I said the congealed waters of the Red Sea, like jello, that's how I picture them right now, like jello, as, as the Israelites passed over. But that's exactly what it says in Genesis 15, I mean Exodus 15, 8, that they were congealed. Now, don't you have a better picture of them just wiggling like that? Um, like jello. Uh, so the Israelites, when that, after that Red Sea crossing, the Israelites were absolutely confident in the power of God Almighty. They were sure at that point. Remember the song of Moses that they all sang together? And Miriam had a tambourine and they were dancing and they were, if you read that song that Moses wrote in chapter 15, they were happy. They were so confident in God that he could do anything for them and that he would do anything for them. And there's a play on words there because they were so sure that as they entered into the wilderness of sure, that's where they should have stayed. Now, sure is spelled S-H-U-R, and it doesn't have anything to do with certainty. <laughs> but I'm doing a play on words. They were sure when they entered the wilderness of sure. But, sadly, that only lasted for how many days? You won't believe it. Three. Three. After seeing all the plagues and the Red Sea crossing, the greatest miracle of the Old Testament, 
And three days later, they're grumbling and complaining and they want to go back to Egypt. That's amazing. (laughs) That's sheep for you. All right. Now, since our study this year is going to focus on the wilderness journey, I want to give us an advanced review of the um, 40 years that she spent there. 40 years. And those 40 years are divided into five parts. The first leg of her journey was from the Red Sea. Okay, she's just crossed over and she's in Midian. So from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. That's the first part of the 40 years. The second part is when she gets to Mount Sinai. And she is led there, of course, through the pillar of cloud. And at Mount Sinai, she receives the law. You know, Moses goes up up into the mountain and receives the law, et cetera, et cetera. She receives instructions to build the tabernacle. And she receives instructions on how to worship God. Do you know how long she's at, she meaning Israel, how long she is at Mount Sinai? 13 months, a long time. Well, then the third part of the 40-year journey in the wilderness is when she leaves Sinai and the Lord leads the people to Kadesh Barnea, which is on the border of Canaan. So she's almost there, almost to Israel, the land. And it's at this point that they send 12 spies into the land of Canaan. One spy for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And these spies go into the land to scout it out. (laughs) And uh, they, after 40 days in the land, they return to give their report. And you know this story, right? Ten of the spies have a very negative report. They say that the walls of the cities in Canaan are just too high, too power, too massive. The people are giants <laughs> and their armies are too strong. And they say, we can't take it. We can't go in. We cannot do it. Who are they showing lack of faith in? God. I remember when they were between a rock and a hard place and Pharaoh and his sword was on one side and the Red Sea was on the other. And Moses said, be still. The Lord will fight the battle for you. They could have gone into Canaan and never lift a finger. Who would fight the battle for them against the Canaanites? The Lord. But they had little faith, no faith. There were only two men who said, we can do it. We can do it because God is on our side. No problem. And who were they? Joshua and Caleb. But the people, you know, the majority is not always right, are they? The people listened to the ten. And unfortunately, uh, they were the ten of unbelief. And they, so therefore, they failed to enter into the promised land. They failed to go into Canaan. And the consequence of their unbelief was another 38 years of wandering in the wilderness until that entire first generation of adults died off. And then that was the fourth, 38 years wandering. Then the fifth part of the wilderness journey, after all the adults of that generation, 20 and above, had died off, except for Caleb and Joshua, then the Lord led them back to the border of Canaan. Moses died. He was not allowed to go into the promised land because he made a big mistake when he struck the rock of Horeb twice. 
But Joshua, who's another picture of Jesus, Joshua took over command, and Israel finally took possession of the inheritance that God had promised them. Now, space-wise, it is interesting that the first 2,000 years of human history are recorded in 11 chapters in Genesis. Genesis 1 to 11 covers 2,000 years of history. The wilderness experience of Israel, which only covers 40 years, not 2,000, but 40 years, is covered in three books of the Old Testament, spanned over three books. Isn't that amazing? So that tells us just by the amount of space God gave to the wilderness journey, you know, we've got Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's spread out in those three books. That tells us that the wilderness journey is important because it's spelling out our journey in life until we get to the promised land. All right, well, besides being divided in um, major physical stages, those five physical stages I just gave you, the wilderness journey can also be spiritually divided into two stages, which we call the walk and the wandering. The walk and the wandering. Walking to Canaan and wandering in the wilderness. The walk is what we call the part of Israel's journey from the Red Sea to Canaan when she was devoted to making progress. Her walk began right after she sang that song of Moses, right after the miracle of the Red Sea crossing. And her walk continued until she got to Kadesh Barnea and heard the bad report from the ten spies. And then in unbelief, She entered the second spiritual stage, which is that of the wandering. It was a dark period of unbelief. Israel was just marking time, waiting for a whole generation to die off. You know, our spiritual life after salvation is to be a walk with God, isn't it? But how many people can you think of as Christians are not really walking the walk? They're just wandering around in circles. They're not getting anywhere. It's a dark period in their life. There's not any fruit. And that's where, you know, that's where she was. Those 38 chapters of wandering are compressed into only six chapters. Six chapters, numbers 15 to 20, is those 38 years of wandering. And that, the reason for that is because there was not much worth recording A Christian who's just wandering doesn't have much fruit, nothing much to write about. It wasn't until the unbelievers of the generation of the ten faithless spies died that God then, you know, they all died off. So God then brought Israel back to Kadesh Barnea, and then they continued the spiritual stage of the walk with Joshua as their leader. And they, you know, you know, the story of Jericho and everything. Now, um... The purpose of the wilderness experience. Now, if you have geography in mind, the quickest way to go from Goshen, I don't have a little red, I don't know how to do a little red thing, but do you? Is it on here? Uh, You know, they were in the northern part of Egypt near the Mediterranean. You see where it says Goshen and Ramses? I know you in the back can't see. But anyway, the quickest way to go from Goshen over to Canaan would be right along the southern route of the Mediterranean Sea. 
And, uh, you know, a person alone could probably do that in a matter of days, but there's two million people. There's old people, there's children, there's cattle, there's herds, you know. So at the most, it might have taken them a month. That would be slow going. But they could have gotten from Egypt over to Cain, the promised land in a month. But, but the Lord, you know, we talked about laughed. He must have been directionally challenged. They must have thought because the Lord led them down into the Sinai Peninsula. You see that white line? He led them across the Sinai Peninsula and then to the Gulf of Aqaba where they had the Red Sea crossing and then they got into Midian. And they must have wondered why in the world he took them that way instead of right along the Mediterranean Sea. But he had his reasons. Number one was to save them from the Philistines because the Philistines owned that land along the Mediterranean Sea there. And the Philistines were enemies and they would not have allowed them to pass without a battle. And the Israelites had been slaves. Their men weren't warriors. They were shepherds. There are women and children. Many of them probably would have been captive and made slaves again or whatever. They weren't ready for a war. So God kept them away from the Philistines. Also, he wanted to perform the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea to, again, not only complete his picture of the gospel, but to show forth his mighty hand to his people. And uh, so he led them that way. And then also he wanted to give them months and years of quiet solitude in order to build a relationship with his people. They really needed to have a relationship. They didn't know him very well. When they were in Egypt all those hundreds of years, they had turned to many of the gods and goddesses of Egypt. So he needed to build up a relationship with them. And also he needed to give them opportunity to develop as a nation. They were just a people of different tribes. A tribal people, you know, the tribes of Jacob, they needed to coerce. They needed to become a nation. But the primary reason for God taking Israel into the wilderness was given by Moses later in his life when he looked back over all those years and he wrote in Deuteronomy 8.2 that the Lord led them for 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble them to humble them and to test them, to prove them so they would know what was in their own hearts. Do you know what's in your own heart? Sometimes we need to learn what's in our own heart by being tested, by being proven, by going through trials. That's when you really find out what's in your heart, don't you? You go through a trial. He wanted to test them whether they would keep his commandments or not. That was, that's his number one purpose, and Moses said that, to humble the children of Israel by testing their faith and obedience. He sent test after test after test. Do we face a lot of tests? You know, you just go in one, and you come out, and then you, pretty soon you know you're going to face another one, aren't you? Life is a series of tests. He sent tests in order to bring to the surface the true nature of their hearts so that they would be exposed to themselves. And that's not always a pretty picture. (laughs) But one way or the other, the children of Israel would learn the futility of self-confidence. None of them could have made the journey without the Lord, period. They needed to learn of his faithfulness, and they needed to trust in him to provide. They're in a desert, You know, there's not a Hardee's on this corner and a Walgreens on that corner. They're in a desert. They need to trust God for their provision. They were going to learn that entrance into the promised land was um, an act of God's grace and God's grace alone. And they were going to learn what it truly means to walk by faith. So as they left Egypt to enter redemption ground, 
they experienced a long process of turning from themselves and turning to God. As we begin Israel's long wilderness journey, we find sadly, as I said, it took only three days from the Red Sea crossing, only three days before their sureness in the wilderness of sure, their confidence in God began to fade. Max Lucado, that's who that is, Max Lucado, um, said this. It's funny. He said, their jubilation over liberation soon becomes frustration over dehydration. (laughs) You ever get the DVDs, Hermie and Wormy? How many of you know what I'm talking about by Max Lucado? Oh, they're great for your kids, Hermie and Wormy. Okay, so now it's true, of course, it's true from the human perspective. Let's look at it from not from God's perspective, but the human perspective. It's true that her circumstances after three days were really pretty dire. Got to admit that. They were pretty bleak. Their water skins were all drained. No more water left. Um, They were very thirsty. You're in a desert, okay? You're thirsty. And their flocks and their herds were very thirsty. Moses probably told them that there was an oasis ahead. How would he know? Do you remember how many years Moses spent on the backside of the Midian Desert? Forty years. He knew the terrain. They're in Midian. He knew the terrain. So he probably knew, ah, oh, yeah, there's a, I know there's an oasis ahead of us, and we'll get there, and we'll all be okay. But problem is, um, when they got there, they found out that the place place earned its name Mara, which means bitter, bitter. Because when they went to drink the water, what was wrong? It was bitter. It was bitter. They could not drink it. Remember Ruth? I mean, um, the book of Ruth, Naomi, her mother-in-law, she changed her name from Naomi to what? Mara, after Mara, because she was bitter. She said, Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She lost her husband and her son, so she changed her name to Mara. The waters of Mara were undrinkable. They were bitter. And when their anticipation of refreshment was not met, (laughs) the disposition of the Israelites very quickly reflected the water because they too became bitter. Bitter. And who did they take their frustration out on? Shouldn't end with a preposition, but anyway, out on. (laughs) Who'd they take it out on? Poor old Moses. Poor, how old? He is old. He's 80 years old. And this is so soon after the Lord had shown them his omnipotence in so many ways. Just think of all those plagues. And the ones like where the light was in their homes, but not, and the Egyptians had no light, and they did. And the frogs and the lice and the boils and the murrhine and the, the waters of the Nile turning to blood and how plague after plague after plague and then seeing the congealed waters of the Red Sea open up so they could pass on dry ground and then come down on all Pharaoh and his army. Seeing all that and three days later you're complaining because you're thirsty. But that's just like us. It's human nature. In complaining to Moses, who are they really complaining to? Remember this. When you gripe, who are you really griping at? If you don't like the way things are going or something, you don't like something about somebody, well, who made that somebody you don't like? <laughs> you really ultimately were griping at God. Now, did they, did they really, people, I mean, really, do you really think that God went to all the trouble 
to deliver you out of Egypt just to abandon you in the desert? I forgot to read the passage. That might be important. Let's look at it. (laughs) Uh, Starting at verse 23 of chapter 15 of Exodus. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord. Now, that was smart, wasn't it? Yeah, that's what they should have done. He cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he, Moses, had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. He was testing them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. That's Jehovah Rapha. That's another name for God. And they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and threescore and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. That's what we're going to cover in the rest of this lesson. All right, so did they really, really think that God went to all that trouble to deliver them out of the land of Egypt, away from slavery, and away from Pharaoh, just to abandon them? Did he go to all the trouble to save you just so he could leave and forsake you? Well, if you're on your own, once he saves you, you're, here you are in the wilderness. Ha <laughs> ha, you're all by self. Let's see what you can do. No. Did he save Moses from drowning in the crocodile-infested Nile River when he was a little baby boy? Um, Did he save him and then train him, give him this education in the palace of Egypt, where he got the best education in the world at that time, and then send him to the backside of the desert for a special school of training and, you know, training a school of hard knocks? learning how to lead sheep for 40 years. You know, he's doing all that to develop leadership in Moses and character and everything. Did he go to all that trouble just so that he could lead them out of Egypt for only three days <laughs> and let them perish of thirst? No, of course not. Did he make promises with their patriarchs about, patriarchs about the, prom, the inheritance of Canaan uh, just to break his promise? Ha ha, I tricked you. I promise you the land, but I'm not going to give it to you. Well, the same thing is true with us. Exactly the same thing. He does not save us only to then abandon us in the wilderness of life. He frees us from our bondage to sin and death, um, as he did with Israel, for a purpose. There's a purpose in having saved you. And he never drops the ball. Never. When it comes to fulfilling his purposes, he who began a good work in you will what? Will complete it. He will complete it. If God has saved you from the penalty of sin, there's no reason to lack assurance in his provision. He can provide for us. Do you trust him for your life? But when the people became afraid, and this was all about fear, they became afraid about their lack of provision, water in this case, their first reaction automatically was to blame Moses for having freed them from Egypt. And this is, you know, this is the blame game. They were actually, they inherited that from Adam. It's this wife you gave me, God, right? Don't we tend to play the blame game? If I didn't have 
him for a husband, I could do all kinds of things. It's his fault or it's her fault or blah, blah, blah. My parents didn't raise me right. (laughs) Um, And of course, in blaming Moses, they were really blaming God. They seemed to forget. They had selective memories. A lot of teenagers have selective memories. They forget all the good things their parents did for them. Not you teenagers, but others. Well, Catherine, my dad, not, are you not a teenager anymore? Are you 20? Ah, Emily is. Anyway, um, they had selective memory. Remember when they had been in slavery for years and years, centuries, and they sighed and they cried out to God for help? Did they, had they forgotten how he came to the rescue? Um, they only, and the people do this, they only seem to remember the good things about Egypt, like the flesh pots of meat that they talk about later. And the uh, eating bread to the food. You, we see where their minds were on food, right? <laughs> all they thought about is food. And so they think about all the good things in Egypt, and they forget the negatives. Well, there was a lot of negatives in Egypt. What about when Pharaoh told the midwives to kill all the little baby boys that were born to them and throw them in the Nile River to drown? What about the making of, you know, slavery and and making bricks? And then he got so mad at them, he said, well, I'm going to take away the straw to make the bricks, and now you have to get the straw and then make the bricks. They forget all that? All they could think about is the flesh pots of meat in Egypt? A basic principle that is taught early in Israel's wilderness experience is that miracles do not create believers. Did you know that? Miracles do not create believers. You would think that if they did, if miracles did create believers, that after all that these people had witnessed in Egypt and at the Red Sea, they would have faith like steel. We saw what God did. We'll never again doubt him. You'd think that, wouldn't you? unmovable faith in God, but rather than being sure of God, they are only sure now of imminent death. We're all going to die. We're going to perish. We're going to starve to death. I mean, not starve. Later on, they think they're going to starve to death and they get manna. Crispy, cream, hot, now manna. (laughs) And then they complain about it later. You know, oh, we're so tired of Krispy Kreme donuts. (laughs) But uh, now they're just sure they're going to all perish. They're going to um, die of, of, not starvation. What do you call it when you die of thirst? Die of thirst, I guess. <laughs> die of thirst. And their dehydration. There you go. Thank you. They, their repeated murmurings and rebellions demonstrate that miracles are not sufficient for the adversities to come. I had a grandmother who always, I'll believe, Catherine, if I can see a miracle. Well, think about the Jews. Do they believe in Jesus after miracle and sign and miracle and sign and miracle after miracle? Do they still believe? No. They always wanted more. That's the thing with miracles. Well, another truth realized in the uh, wilderness journey of Israel is that as pilgrims traveling through the desert on their way to a land flowing with milk and honey, they were not to expect that the desert would be permanently satisfying. Do you expect this world to be permanently satisfying? You shouldn't. Because it's just temporary. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. Both Egypt and the wilderness are biblical pictures of the world, even though they're, they're different pictures, but they're both pictures of the world. Egypt is a picture of, uh, 
of, uh, of the world before we're saved. Okay? Egypt is a picture of the world before deliverance. The wilderness is a picture of life in the world after salvation, after deliverance. Now, the wilderness is still very difficult, as you all know, but it is tremendously better than Egypt. Why would you want to go back to Egypt? In Egypt, you were not free. At least in the wilderness, you're free. In Egypt, you were in bondage to sin and death. The wages of sin is death. You were under the uh, authority of an of a evil king, Satan or Pharaoh. And in the wilderness, you have a new king. You're free. You have a gracious, wonderful new king. And he is ever present with you. And he will provide for your needs. The ways of the world are still bitter in the wilderness. But with the Lord, the wilderness can be made sweet. The Israelites were going to need to learn a new way of life. Where they depended on God, not Egypt, to supply their needs. They were going to have a change in diet. They're all going to lose a lot of weight. Even on Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice to eat them and lose weight? But they did a lot of walking, so that counteracted it. But they are going to have a new day, diet. They were going to need to acquire a new appetite for the food God would provide. For 40 years, they would have manna in the morning and quail at night. Although I don't think they had quail every night. I think quail just passed through several times. But they have manna and quail. <laughs> that would be weird to eat your Krispy Kreme donut with a bird, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, I'm getting silly. <laughs> they, would, they would learn to gather enough for themselves one day at a time. You know, the manna, we're going to discuss that next time about manna, uh, except on the Sabbath, of course. It was a lesson in prophetic type on the importance of feeding ourselves spiritually, you know, daily on the nourishment that God provides in the meat of his word. And in the true manna from heaven. Who is the true manna from heaven? Christ, the Lord. They were to be content with whatever the Lord supplied for them. And he would meet their every need. Not their greed, but their every need. So Israel may have physically left Egypt, but Egypt had not entirely left Israel. Egypt was still inside the hearts of the Israelites. God needed to get Israel entirely removed, externally and internally, from Egypt. She desperately needed to grow in her spiritual maturity. And do you know there is no shortcut to spiritual maturity? Don't you wish there was? You could snap your fingers and instantly you're spiritually mature? Or your kids? Oh, that would be great. Your grandkids, you know, whoop. Oh, they're so mature. Doesn't happen that way. Uh, being set free is not simply about getting out of a place where things are oppressive. It is also about getting free of oppression that is within. Many people who have been saved still act like they're slaves. They are uh, still allowing sin to call the shots. 
And they're still allowing temptation to be victorious in their life. You know what I'm talking about? Been freed, but they're still acting like they're slaves. The wilderness journey is God at work helping to free us from our yoke to all kinds of issues. And we all have different issues. Now, Moses must have also been disappointed when they got to this oasis um, because it, it was bitter. And I think he was planning on, you know, the refreshing water and to solve the situation. But he was different from the people in that he had learned to lean and trust in the one who is the source of every supply. That's where all his training, especially in Midian, came in really well. He presented strong leadership when he interceded on behalf of his people by crying out to the Lord for help. And as soon as he cried out, the response was immediate. What happened? The Lord showed him a tree. Now, interestingly, God did not show Moses a rock for water. Now, he would later on. He didn't show him a rock, and he didn't tell him to use his rod. Remember how many times he's used his shepherd's staff, his rod? But this time it's neither a rock nor a rod. What did he show him? A tree. The source of healing was a tree. Now, the literal meaning of the Hebrew word for showed, showed him a tree. The literal Hebrew is instruction. It is the root verb of the word Torah, which means instruction. So in other words, the Lord, and when the Lord is all in capitals, it's Yahweh, where we get Jehovah. Yahweh Torahed Moses a tree. He instructed Moses about a tree. Now, the instruction to Moses about the tree was for the people. Mara's bitter waters revealed the bitterness in the hearts of the people. And it only took one trial, the first test, for that bitterness to raise its ugly head. The external issue of bitter water revealed the internal issue of the heart. What becomes abundantly obvious in the wilderness is that the Israelites needed deliverance from more than just Pharaoh. They needed deliverance from bitterness and bitter hearts. So when Moses was instructed about the three he, tree, he was um, to throw the tree into the bitter waters, according to the Lord's instruction. And he did that. And what happened? Immediately, the bitter waters became sweet. Now, over the centuries, people have speculated about what kind of tree that was. And we're not told and we don't know. But most Jewish rabbis believe that it was a certain bitter tree that grows in that area. I don't know why it's bitter. I don't know if anybody eats it, but maybe the bark is bitter or something. But they believe it's a bitter tree. And that God, as he often does, corrected a contrary with a contrary. In other words, he, he used uh, bitterness to heal bitterness. Um, 
which is exactly what he did when he made redemption from the bitterness of sin possible by he himself tasting the bitterness of sin in our place and dying the bitter death of crucifixion. You know, he used a contrary to heal a contrary. How did the bitter water become sweet? By a tree. How does a bitter person become a sweet, God-centered person? By a tree. The cross, the cross of Calvary was a bitter tree, a very bitter tree. Who died on that bitter tree? The son of God. That was a bitter tree. But that is what makes life sweet is that bitter tree. So by being instructed about a tree, who made the water sweet? Who made the water sweet by the use of the tree? Was it Moses? No, it was the Lord, the Lord. It wasn't, Moses is not the miracle worker. The miracle worker is the Lord. He is the giver of the tree, and he is the miracle worker using the tree. Now, the account of Israel at the bitter waters of um, Mara is not only about the Lord proving or testing Israel, testing her. It's also about his wilderness provision. That tree had been growing there. I don't know how old it was but it had been growing there for quite a while for this very purpose, which was to heal the bitter waters. You see, the Lord has a remedy for every trouble, and he put that remedy in place long before men ever knew they would need it. For every bitter well, there is a healing tree. For every bitter problem and trial in your life, there is a remedy. And it all centers on a tree. Are you following me? And it's true. The world doesn't understand that, but it's true. The problem is that most people don't see his remedy. Moses had to be shown the tree. It says the Lord showed him the tree. He had to be shown the tree even though it was right there in front of him, in front of all of them. Now, the cross is the ultimate remedy for every bitterness there is in life, even death. The cross is the remedy. But people have to be shown it. They need to see that it was planted and prepared for them by God long ago. They need to understand that it is the remedy for every bitter bitter experience in this wilderness adventure that we are all on together. Well, immediately immediately after the tree... made the bitter water sweet, God gave Israel a statute and an ordinance or a regulation which required Israel's obedience. Can't talk anymore. (laughs) I'm running out of steam. Um, This is called the Mara Statute. And here it is. He said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do all that is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, and I am the Lord that healeth thee. So basically the Lord's promise here is to not bring on Israel any of the plagues that he had brought on Egypt. But this promise, this statute is conditional, meaning she ha- Israel has to do something in order to receive that promise. What does Israel have to do? She has to diligently listen to him and do right by giving ear to his commandments. She has to obey him. Do you know that Psalm 105 verse 37 tells us that not one 
feeble person left Egypt in the Exodus? Think about that. They're old people. And two million people, and yet not one feeble person left Egypt in the Exodus. That is amazing. That is amazing. He made sure they were all healthy. Now, he gave lots of diseases to the Egyptians and stuff, but he really spared Israel. Now, in the Mara statute, the Lord is telling the Israelites through Moses that if they would be faithful to obey his commandments, he would deliver them from every evil disease and calamity and preserve them in health. He would keep them sweet throughout the whole trip. And he could have easily done that for every one of those two million people. He could keep them from wearing out. You know what we're told in Deuteronomy about their clothes and their shoes? They didn't wear out. How'd you like that for a good pair of shoes? All that walking. And we're also told that their feet didn't swell. Boy, I would love that. They didn't, for 40 years, their feet didn't swell. Uh, until they reach the promised land, and then all their feet swell. <laughs> so the Mara statute makes it clear that the focus of this episode is on the transformation of Israel, not the waters of Mara. It's not about the waters of Mara. It's about the waters of their hearts, the bitterness in their hearts. They needed to become Yahweh-centered. And he says, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Yahweh is the name for God that means the self-existing one. You know, I am the self-existent one. Rapha means to heal or to restore. So the name Yahweh Rapha, now you don't see that, you only see I'm the Lord that healeth thee, but in Hebrew it's Yahweh Rapha, is, uh, it, it basically means healing is what I am. You like that? Healing is what I am. So how does a bitter, griping, murmuring, complaining person become a sweet, content, God-centered person? By Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals, the I am healer who is able to transform the bitter waters of the hearts to waters of renewal. Did you notice he didn't say, I am the one who heals the water? Did he say that? No, he said, I am the one that heals you. You see, his concern is not about the water, his concern about his people. He sought to heal their bitter hearts by means of instruction. Jesus is the instruction. He is the Torah. He is the word. He is the law. He is our transforming word from Yahweh. Throughout his earthly ministry, what did Jesus do? He went around doing what? Healing people. He proved he was Yahweh Rapha, the great physician. It says in Matthew 4, 23, he went from town to town healing every disease and sickness among the people. He heals us physically. He can heal. He can heal my heart and just like that, can he, if he wanted to? He can heal if he wants to. He can heal us emotionally. He can heal us uh, socially, physically, mentally. What am I leaving out? <laughs> Spiritually, yeah, that's the greatest healing, is spiritual. He can heal us however he wants. Every day and in every way, Jesus, when he was on earth, proved he was Yahweh Rapha in the flesh. And his great transformational instruction centers on what? A tree. A tree. All the sweetness and healing that can be ours in this wilderness life comes by way of the work of Christ on the cross. 
The tree of Mara symbolizes what? The cross. So the tree that was thrown into the bitter waters pictures the, the uh, cross. But even more than the cross, the tree of Mara symbolizes Christ himself. To make the water sweet, you know what had to happen to that tree? Had to be cut down. The tree had to be cut down. The Lord Jesus was cut down. He was cut off for our transgressions. He tasted the bitterness of death so that we might know the sweetness of forgiveness and eternal sonship with the Father. It's really sad to realize how many people there are who refuse healing in their lives because they demand an escape instead of a solution. You know, if the Israelites had been a little bit closer to Egypt, do you know what they would have done at this point? Exactly. They, after they tasted the bitter waters of Mara, they would have turned around and headed back to those flesh pots in Egypt. And I don't think they ate that great in Egypt, do you? Flesh pots of meat. They did not turn to God here in this first test, in this first problem, as Moses did. They didn't turn to God for a solution. They were ready to make an escape rather than look for a solution. Often people are not willing to pray about a bitter situation becoming a sweet situation. They're not willing to seek a solution to make lemons into lemonade. You know? Oh, this marriage, this job. Okay, that's your situation. Take the lemons and make it into lemonade. Take the bitterness and make it into sweetness by centering on the cross. Be a witness to that difficult person. You know, there's many ways. I was, I was, I was not bitter, but I was, I was disappointed when they made the surgery, heart surgery, for the exact time my new little grandson is going to be born. But then it didn't take me long at all to think this is God's will. I want to get this behind me because I don't want to be out there with a newborn and they have to worry about the stress of a newborn and then t- run grandma to the ER. You know, that wouldn't be good. Or on the plane, you know, have an episode or something. And then I found out her mother's going to be with him. So it worked out. You know, it worked out. I'll go after her mother finishes helping out and then I'll go. It's fine. You know, it's fine. When you see God's sovereign hand, you just accept it and go on and make lemonade out of it. And even if, you know, it's a win-win situation. I remember Mary Jo used to say that. Um, Mary Jo Perkins in our Bible study sitting right there. She got cancer and it's not good. And she'd say it's a win-win situation because if if I die, I'll be delivered, you know, one way or the other. Look, (laughs) focus on the tree, right? Focus on the tree. You see, often Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals, wants to transform what we already have. Don't look for an escape. Look for a solution. An interesting comparison, and I am almost done, okay? An interesting comparison is to think that the plagues of Egypt began with nobody able to drink the water. Why? What did he do with the water in Egypt? Turned it to blood. Nobody could drink the bloody water. The wilderness journey began 
with nobody able to drink the water because it was bitter. First case, it was bloody. Second, it was bitter. The waters of the Nile were affected by a staff. The waters of Mara were affected by a stick. That's just interesting. Throw that in there. All right. In Exodus 15:27, we read that their next stop in their wilderness journey was to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water, and they weren't bitter. They were wonderful, refreshing water wells. And then there were how many palm trees? What's three score in 10? 70. They set up camp there at Elam. So they went from the bitter turned sweet waters of Mara to the 12 wells and 70 palms of Elam. They went from a dry and thirsty barren land to an oasis. How many tribes of Jacob went into Egypt? How many tribes? 12 tribes of Egypt of Jacob went into Egypt. I mean, Joseph went first <laughs> ahead of them. Uh, 12 tribes went into Egypt. How many people went into Egypt? 70, right. So this, you see, is a symbolic reminder that God fulfilled his promise to Israel. 12 tribes went into Egypt and 12 came out of Egypt and would go into the promised land. 70 people went into Egypt and those, the descendants of those 70 people all came out of Egypt and would enter into the promised land. Well, not all of them, a bunch of them. You know, that wilderness journey was filled with carcasses along the way, wasn't it? Well, mentioned right after the healing of the waters of Mara, the 12 pools of water and the uh, 70 palm tree, trees are linked to rest and refreshment in the provision and protection of God. It was an oasis along the walk. You know, we're in a wilderness, but do you find here and there there's places of rest and refreshment, an oasis? Now, I mean, it's not all wilderness, is it? There's wonderful times of joy and happiness and refreshment, with, especially with fellow believers. All right, the palm tree is, uh, the palm trees over there are umbrella-like. I don't know where I am. There, there it is. Okay. Um, and so a palm tree refers to, in, in the scripture, refers to the idea of covering. People would get under the, you know, the branches of the palm tree for covering and shade and protection. <laughs> palm trees also in the book of Job, uh, Joel symbolize joy and were used, palm branches were used to cover the booths that they would build on the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorated God when God would dwell with man. And they covered those booths. They lived there in, for a week with palm branches. This is the first mention of palms in the Bible. Palms picture protection, victory, triumph, peace, eternal rest, eternal life. Who knows when the last mention of palms is given in the Bible? Anyone want to guess? Huh? Yes, yes. There it is. I'm skipping all around here. The last mention of palms in the scripture was on Palm Sunday. Uh, remember the palm branches the people were waving as Jesus rode in on that donkey, um, officially proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the one who would bring victory and triumph and peace and eternal rest and eternal life, and the one who would tabernacle with us forever. So the lesson to us are we not more like the Israelites than we would like to admit? <laughs> huh? When the Lord doesn't work in our lives like we think he should, 
do we tend to grumble inside? Maybe not even out loud, but do we grumble within? Do we allow a root of bitterness to lodge in our heart? Don't do that. Don't let that happen to you. Bitterness is a killer. Do we begin to plan ways that we might make things happen the way we think they should by our own efforts? When the Lord's timing of things is different than what we had hoped, do we harbor resentment against him? Do we tend to look at other people who don't have our struggles? Why doesn't she have heart problems? That's not fair. (laughs) Do we question God? Do we get angry at God? He is Yahweh Rapha. He longs to heal us of resentfulness, bitterness, pride, covetousness, everything there is out there. He wants to heal us if we simply trust him and walk before him in obedience. So let him heal us of whatever it is that inflicts each of us differently, right? We all have different problems. But he's Jehovah Yahweh, I mean, uh, Yahweh Rapha, the one who heals. So trust him, okay? Now, if you have a special prayer request or if you have never asked the Lord Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, if you'd like to stay after for a minute, um, we have ladies who would love to pray with you. I'm available. Uh, We want to make sure everyone leaves here today having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we are sorry that far too often we respond like Israel when life doesn't go our way. And we complain and grumble, which is really complaining and grumbling and murmuring against you. So, Father, help us instead of doing that in the future. May we realize that whatever wilderness trials we experience, they're all part of your curriculum, individually designed for each one of us in order to surface our heart and cultivate our faith and make us more God-centered. I know that some of us right now are in the midst of deeply bitter waters. Give us the grace to not complain, but to turn in complete reliance on your healing powers. You can take anything bitter, and I mean anything, and you can make it into something sweet. We know that because you took the most bitter bitter thing ever, the death of your son on a very bitter tree and made it the most refreshing, fulfilling, sweetest tasting thing anyone can ever drink from. You truly are an amazing Savior. Please do the work only you can do in the hearts of everyone present here today, for we ask in your blessed name. Amen. God bless you.